If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's dripping with blood. And history, and so the value of a stone uh, is not always down to its size. For all that ancient history that lies behind this stone, it is a live political thing. That was Anita Anand discussing the Kohinoor diamond. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today we're going to be talking about a jewel whose history and present status are shrouded in controversy. The Kohinoor diamond was taken from India to Britain in the 19th century and resides today in the Tower of London. But for a long time, campaigners have sought to have it returned to South Asia, and these disputes have continued until recent times. 
The Koh-i-Noor story has now been told in a new book, co-written by the historian and author William Dalrymple, and the author and BBC journalist Anita Anand. We sent our staff writer Ellie Cawthorn to meet them in London to find out more. So your new book traces the history of the Koh-i-Noor diamond from ancient India through to its current location in the Tower of London. Why were you both so interested by the history of this infamous stone? There was this strange incident last year in India when the Indian Solicitor General made a public statement to the Indian Parliament saying, contrary to what everyone in India believes, that the Koh-i-Noor was not taken by force from India and looted, but was gifted benignly by Raja Maharaja Ranjit Singh to the British. Now, everything about that statement is wrong and intriguing. So what we wanted to know what was going on. When it actually arrived in British hands, Ranjit Singh had been dead 10 years, unless he gave it by Ouija board or astral projection. It's difficult to see how he could have done that. Plus, you know, there's no question of how it... Almost everything about the diamond's history is in dispute, but one thing that everyone can agree on is that it arrived in British hands in 1849 as Article 3 of the Treaty of Lahore, uh, when it uh, as part of the ceasefire in the Second Anglo-Sikh War. And, and anybody who knows anything about that part of history, the word gift would be the last word to occur to them. So, you know, I think sort of frustration and rage is a great motivating factor. <laughs> we heard this thing about, what? So it just so made we us work called up, Because the Koh-Noor appears in both our previous yeah. books. We were called up by the press in, yeah. in both countries and ended up writing articles at that stage in a state of, of, of quite great ignorance ourselves on, yeah. on the finer points of the story. And we realised that there was an extraordinary story here. Not only was there something which is passionately important to people, not just in India, but it turns out uh, there are current claims on the diamond from Pakistan, from Bangladesh, from Iran from Afghanistan, and most surprising of all, the Taliban. Mullah Omar wrote a letter to the Queen asking for it back. Mm. So half of Asia is, which, you know, makes up whatever it is, a third of humanity, is completely obsessed with this diamond. It's not the world's largest diamond by some stretch, and it's arguably not the most spectacular. Why is it so contested and coveted? Because it's dripping with blood. And history. And so the value of a stone uh, is not always down to its size. You're quite right. I mean, when people go and see the Koh-i-Noor, it's there. You can see it right now. Get a ticket. Go see it today. It, it is next to a rather more spectacular, much larger diamond called the Cullinan. Um, but no other diamond has so many claims, as William says, you know, from different countries who believe very passionately. I mean, you, what you've got to realise is that there is a diamond-shaped hole in the psyche of all of these claimants. They all think that this is the foundation of identity in some ways. Well, it's come to be a symbol of colonial looting, to put it yeah, as simple as the, that. You that's know? ultimately the thing. Is that it, 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 it symbolises for Indians everything they lost when the British arrived and ruled them for, for 300 years. And people are often extremely hazy about the history of the diamond, uh, but they just know it's ours and we want it back. And one of the reasons it is so important is because the British made it so important. So Queen Victoria, That's irony. Yeah. you know, is, is the one who, uh, it, it became India. She was never going to visit her eastern empire. But she adored stories about it. She, she poured over these stories with great care. And suddenly here is this physical manifestation of India. It becomes India. And even when Albert dies and she puts away all of her, her colourful clothes and her jewels, the Kohnor remains the thing, the jewel that she wears, the jewel of state. And so it becomes now, you know, in Britain, a sign of colonial power, a sign of empire, a sign of Victoria and, and inextricable 
from that. What's fascinating, though, is, you know, as with all interesting historical myths, uh, particularly popular historical myths, as soon as you probe them and poke them, things look a little bit different on analysis. And we found that the history of diamonds is really quite different, not only from the popular myth, but also from everything that's been written in the scholarly accounts uh, to date. And we've traced back the mythology of the diamond, which has become the accepted history of the diamond, to one single document written in 1849 when the British took the diamond. Uh, the Governor-General responsible, Lord Dalhousie, commissioned a young civil servant to research the history of this diamond, to go to the Red Fort, where the Mughals were still living, and uh, to go to the jewellers of Chandni Chowk, which is the main uh, jeweller's street in uh, the centre of Delhi. Uh, but uh, he went around and collected all these myths. But the diamond hadn't been anywhere near Delhi for 100 years. So what he was getting was already, you know, gold-wide gossip, gossip you know, passed by tongue to tongue, which had invented this magnificent history that it was mined in darkest antiquity in these, you know, hecatomb uh, sort of burrows under under the fortress of Golconda, that it was uh, taken to the eye of an idol in the temple of the Kakatia dynasty, seized from there by wicked Turks with bloody swords who, uh, you know, killed the Brahmins and took it off to Delhi, where it was taken by other dynasty, the Tukluks, then taken by the Lodis, then the Mughals, all complete bollocks. You know, there, there's also a supernatural aspect of it. I mean, you know, the way William described it, it does sound like something straight out of, you know, the Lord of the Rings. But there is also this this other aspect of the history where in ancient Hindu scripture, there is talk of a Siamantica gem, the gem that belonged to Surya, the god of the sun. It contained all of the radiance of the sun. And over time in India, and, and William's quite right, you know, that so, so little had been written down people found it very easy to conflate these two stones because this, the Koh-i-Noor, had passed through so many hands with disastrous consequences. Terrible things happened to the people who owned this diamond. Uh, and so people started to think, well, this might be this, the gem of Surya. This might be the gem of the gods, which is why it has no pity for any mortal who holds it. In, in the original Bhagavad Purana, written in the 10th century, but reflecting stories that may well date millennia before then, uh, the stone comes down to earth and immediately when anyone who is not perfect takes the stone, he suffers terrible. It's like the, the ring of power in Lord mm. of the Rings. So he, and uh, so it go, the king of Dwarka who has it gives it to his brother who's no good. He goes in the forest, he's immediately killed by a lion. The lion is killed by a bear. And then Krishna, who's perfect, God King, has to go out and rescue it. He then gives it as a present to his father-in-law, who's decapitated shortly afterwards by robbers. And so it goes on. Mm. And and mm. by the 19th century, when the Kohenor had begun to become famous, and this is, again, one of the other things we found, that it wasn't particularly valued by its first actual known owners, which was the Mughal dynasty. They put it right on top of the peacock throne, where it glittered gorgeously with the rest of their gem collection, but was more or less invisible to the naked eye unless you sort of got on a chair or a ladder and sort of peered at it. Uh, and when people are writing about the peacock throne, they talk about the amazing diamonds in, in a general sense, but they don't mention the Koh-i-Noor specifically. They do mention other stones. They loved, the Mughals loved spindles and rubies from Burma. And they mentioned particularly the Timur ruby, which was for the Mughals the most famous and special of their gems, not the Koh-i-Noor. Mm. But by the 19th century... By the time it gets back to India, having gone off to Iran and then to Afghanistan, it comes to into the hands of Maharaja Ranjit Singh in the Punjab. And he turns it into a rock star. He yeah. turns it into the gem of power. So he wears it, strapped... So, so if you, you are a fan of Game of Thrones, you will hear much talk of the King of the North. Ranjit Singh was the real deal. 
He was a, a, a boy who rode out as a teenager and united all of the various missiles or fiefdoms of the north into one unassailable empire. He was the lion of Punjab, is what in India they call him, Shere Punjab. And he wore very simple clothes. He wasn't like the kings who had gone before, who dripped with pearls, you know, obnoxiously, you know, had laden with things. The first he, British ambassador to the Mughal court described Jahangir, the emperor, as fettered with gold and diamonds. Literally, it's like he's, he's in prison. Move. But, but Ranjit Singh only wore one on his arm. There it was, on his arm, the Kohen or the Mountain of Light, which is how it translates. And it then became the one rule, the one ring to rule them all. Well, when, when, when Maharaja Ranjit Singh died, mm-hmm. um, there was a, a, he left a vacuum. I mean, he was such a powerful ruler. And first, the gem goes to his son, Karak Singh, the crown prince, who is not worthy. The people think he is not worthy. Um, Emily Eden described him as an opium-eating blockhead. And so it isn't long before, you know, there is a, a murder plan, sinister, hatched to wrest from him the kingdom and the Kohenor because he's not worthy of, of having either. And so he's slowly poisoned to death. Uh, over a period of months, uh, this compound of lead and camphor and uh, a few other things is added to his food and he starts losing control of his faculties and people don't notice because they think, oh, he's drunker than usual. Oh, Carrick, so he's such a drunk. And when it's too late to save him, he's sort of bedridden and his son is brought to the kingdom to rule a teenager who's not sort of laden with all of this baggage that his father had, who was a drunk and a, and, and a drug addict and liked women much more than liked governing. Uh, but Nornihal, the son, doesn't even make it past his father's funeral. So he's coming back from washing the ash from his hair and his face after the cremation and he comes through the gate and, and this mysteriously in this so-called accident, a block of masonry falls and it crushes his friend to death and it catches him, according to an eyewitness, a glancing blow and he walks away. But it could not have been that simple because a physician comes to see him an hour later and his head is entirely caved in. This is not a man who could have walked away. He's just been bludgeoned. And then it continues. And then his his mother, who locks the gates of the citadel because she wants to hold the kingdom and the Kohenor until her daughter-in-law, Nornihal's wife, gives birth to a child because please let this be a son... Well, yes, she locks the doors and, and her daughter-in-law gives birth to a son, but the son is stillborn. And so this idea that the Kohenor is picking off the cubs of the lion one by one by one starts to create a frenzy. Um, and so, you know, she has to open the gates. There's another challenger. Ranjit Singh had another wife. He, she had another son. He comes to the citadel, forces his way in. She's allowed to leave, but she's bludgeoned to death. Uh, in her own palace, because as long as she's alive, there may be another uh, campaign to to get the diamond and the throne back. So in 19th century Britain, these ideas of a curse attached to the Koh-i-Noor were still very popular. What kind of form did they take then and what events were linked to the Koh-i-Noor? So, I mean, you're right, in fiction, and this is after the Koh-i-Noor comes to the attention of the British, and uh, books, you know, like The Moonstone are written. And Lothair, you know, the slightly less known book by Disraeli uh, about a cursed gem. And what happens is when the diamond is actually on its way to Britain, um, to use the, uh, you know, lemony snicket, a series of unfortunate incidents happen with its uh, traversing. So it's loaded onto a ship. The ship sails away into the deep blue sea where nobody can steal it back, which is the great worry of Dalhousie. The Indians will take it back. They must not be allowed to take it back. And immediately men start dropping like flies on board because cholera has broken out on the ship. 
So then this ship called the Medea, um, the captain, Captain Lockyer, who is the only man who on the ship, apart from two escorts, one from the East India Company and one a nephew of Dalhousie, who are accompanying this diamond, they're the only ones who know they've got the Koh-i-Noor loaded on board. The crew have no idea. So the ship sort of limps its way towards Mauritius. Captain Lockyer says, don't worry, we're going to get medicine, we're going to get water, it's going to be fine. Mauritius says, you're not coming anywhere near us, mate. We will blast you out of the water. And so they send him on his way. He galvanises his crew, keeps them together, saying, look, we will get to Britain, don't worry. They sail straight into one of the worst typhoons in 10 years, which almost splits the Medea in half. And it's only when those poor, beleaguered, surviving crewmen reach British shores that they, and the press are there, and there's such a lot of hoopla about collecting the diamond, they realise, oh my God, it's that stone that we were carrying, and maybe it was trying to drag us all to hell. You know, you'd be forgiven for thinking that. Um, And at the same time, it just enters British territorial waters, and a former Prime Minister of Britain, Peel, a great confidant of Queen Victoria, is riding his horse up Constitution Hill, He's a very good horseman. He's thrown, bizarrely, off his horse. And then even more bizarrely, the horse trips over him and falls on him and kills him outright. Queen Victoria is visiting her uncle and a lunatic comes out of the crowd and smacks her over the head with a, a cane, a metal-tipped cane. So when she receives the koh at Buckingham Palace, she does so with a whopping great shiner of a black eye and a cut across her head. And that's where that idea of this cursed stone translates beautifully and seamlessly into the British imagination. And what can we tell from the Koh-i-Noor about how understandings and uses of diamonds have changed over time? For example, what was their significance in ancient India? And by the time we get to Victoria in the 19th century, how had that meaning changed? So India has uh, a really complicated uh, system of, of analogies between astronomy and gemstones. So the hour, the exact hour and minute of your birth and the particular stars, uh, affects what gemstones are lucky for you or unlucky for you. And there's elaborate treatises in ancient India. Even to this day, people yeah. still do that to this day, by the way. Uh, jewellers will give, if you have a, a child who's born, they will give you a diamond to give to that child later on, and you are told to sleep with it under your pillow and see how you're feeling. And if it doesn't work, you give you, it back. You yeah. can give it back. Get another one, yeah. So, yes, you were saying. So, that's... so the, the, ancient India has one of the, I think probably the fullest gemological literature of any ancient civilization. Um, China possibly coming number two. And um, in ancient India, the diamonds are the number one king of all gems, uh, ahead of everything else. And they are believed to contain a fragment of the, uh, of the gods. Um, specifically, another kind of myth has that the, the demon Valor gives himself up for sacrifice by the, to save the gods, and wherever his blood falls on earth, their diamond mines uh, uh, can be found. Uh, and um, so there's a lot of literature in the Puranas about this. But when the Mughals turn up from Central Asia, they bring with them an entirely different Persianate uh, cultural baggage. Uh, and their red stones of light are the things that Hafiz and Ferdowsi and the great Persian poets talk about. So diamonds get slightly put in the second tier, uh, quite literally in, in the case of the Mughal treasury under Akbar, where we have a detailed breakdown of what goes where in the Mughal treasury, and diamonds are in the second layer along with pearls, sapphires and emeralds. But uh, spindles, which no one today really talks about, they're from Badakhshan. I mean, they more or less look like rubies to us, but they are technically slightly different. Uh, rubies and spindles go on the top tier. 
So that is what sort of is, is you know, in the greatest, most important pieces of Mughal jewellery, it's not diamonds. There's someone there as minor, minor bit players. So you have different, and, and in, in, in Indian courts, um, where often very little clothing was worn above the waist, um, you used gemstones as a form of ranking. So rather like in, a, say, in, in a Victorian uh, military context, you know, the amount of braid on your epaulette would be a, a marker of rank. So you could read rank in an Indian court visually by, in terms of gemstones. Uh, so the, again, the elaborate literature given to what, what rank of courtier can wear what gem in what place, but diamonds are reserved for rajas and viziers. But at the time that, you know, the British have their eye on the Kohinoor diamond, apart from it being this absolute representation of India and, and power and dominion, if you get the diamond, you've got India. Um, in, in Europe, diamond cutting had come along leaps and bounds, and so these very sparkly gems were coming into uh, fashion and into jewellery. And so diamonds were very sought after in Europe. So when news comes that there is a mountain of light coming towards Britain, the largest diamond that is known at that time by anyone from Britain. I mean, the, the, the stones that are now found in South Africa, they, 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 all large diamonds came from India initially. People are beside themselves. So when Queen Victoria and Prince Albert decide they're going to put this diamond on show, the Great Exhibition, uh, in 1851... There is a stampede to see the Kohinoor. The Kohinoor is the thing that gets people through the door. It's on newspapers, it's on billboards, it's on, you know, whatever it is, you know, hand flyers. Come, come, come and see the Kohinoor. And it's displayed at the Great Exhibition in a gilded cage, like it's some kind of wild animal that might sort of leap out and chew your face off, you know. Um, And the great British public, six million of them, in the end, will go through the the doors of the Great Exhibition, uh, which is a third of the population at the time. They will come and see the diamond and they will say, huh? because it doesn't sparkle like the, the cut, fine cut diamonds they are seeing now coming from, from uh, uh, the it, Netherlands. They're it, not, it's nothing like that. It's, it's very interesting because the um, medieval t- uh, taste, uh, if you go to a medieval treasury like in uh, uh, St. Mark's Basilica or, or in Hagia Sophia or, or Conk or one of the great cathedrals, you'll see these cabochons, these uncut stones, plastered on in irregular fashion. And that fashion continued in India, although, oddly enough, diamond cutting may well have been invented in India. Uh, and then, sort of, you know, the, the technology was, was taken further by uh, Europeans, particularly the, the Jews of Amsterdam for, uh, made a great talent of this. Um, and there are early references to the Mughal emperors using Jewish trading networks to get their stones, to get them cut, in, uh, get them to Goa where, again, uh, Jewish families would come from Amsterdam and cut in Goa for the Mughals and they get sent back to Agra. Um, but by 19th century Europe, people only expected cut stones. Sparklers, sparklers. proper sparklers. Yeah. You know. And everything had to be symmetrical mm. and arranged. While the Mughals still, like like our medieval forebears, like these big bulbous things, and were quite happy to have sort of odd you know, bits of bulge mm. coming out and... And, and when they arrived from India, the Kohinoor looked a bit like Arthur's seat. It had this big sort of nose at the front and this sort of de- declivity coming back. I mean, it looked like it, it's called the Mountain of Life, and it does indeed look like an irregular mountain range. But that reaction that, that the diamond got at the Great Exhibition, it drove uh, Albert mad. It just wasn't beautiful. It wasn't, what, it wasn't the reception that it should have got, and it was such an important jewel to Victoria's reign, he decides to recut it. And he asks his experts, can I recut it? 
And they will say, no, really don't do that because it's got a flaw. This is a diamond with a flaw at its heart. That is itself interesting also because the, the flaw is in the Hindu scriptures. If a diamond has a flaw, that diamond is one that brings bad luck. So they say, don't cut it because you'll destroy it. So he casts further afield. He finds diamond cutters in Amsterdam who say, yes, we'll cut it. We can do it. If you're paying enough, we'll come and do it. It'll be fine. It won't lose any of its mass. We'll make it pretty. They cut it in a a, a shed in Haymarket. And it is, forgive the pun, cutting edge technology they're using. But it's a disaster because they halve its size. So the diamond that you see in the Tower of London is half the size of the diamond that came to Britain. It arrives as 190.3 carats and it comes out of the shed in Haymarket at 90 carats. More than that stuff. So you mentioned earlier um, Shah Jahan's peacock throne in which it appeared. What are some of the other spectacular settings in which it's been placed over time? Well, so when, when Ranjit Singh had it, um, he wore it in something called a bazuband, which is it's an armlet. It's, it's a thing that is strapped. It was accompanied by two very large diamonds and the Kohenor sat in the middle and it was strapped to his arm. So everyone saw it all the time. And to wear it on your muscle is to show, you know, you are the man. Uh, when it came to Britain and it was cut, uh, Garrard's, there are some lovely, invoices which we sort of talk about in the book uh, where Victoria had it fashioned into a crown so a crown with special hinge mechanisms I mean that's sort of saying it's in in a very crude form but it was actually very clever where it could be almost like a third eye like the third eye of an idol which is where it was meant to go um, in India it would sit but she could also release it and wear it as as a brooch which she did um, a lot of the time after Albert died very clever yeah Yeah, very clever little thing so and you see it I mean it's, it's then it after Victoria, Victoria is the last reigning monarch to wear the Kohenor diamond. Now, whether that is because of this idea of the curse, which we know certainly bothered Queen Victoria, she asked many questions about this, this curse thing. Can we talk about the curse thing? Just wanted to know a little bit more about the curse thing. And to the point where Dalhousie just kind of loses it and says, well, if she doesn't want it, give it to me, I'll wear it. Um, but sh- wear it, she does. But after she dies, no reigning monarch does wear it. Perhaps this idea of the curse is just too much to bear, but the the monarch's spouse wears it. And they refashion crowns. You know, they basically, in in Britain, there's a lot of recycling that goes on in the crown jewels. You know, they take apart these these fabulous crowns of their forebears and they make new ones. Um, And now it's in the Queen Mother's crown and it's waiting. And perhaps one day, if Queen Camilla chooses, she will um, refashion it once again and wear it on her head, or not. Because now the thing is a diplomatic grenade, so I'm not sure how anybody's going to feel about wearing it. It's very interesting because... Having the British, having themselves at the Great Exhibition, turned it into a symbol then of imperial glory. Uh, we are left now with something that is a symbol of colonial looting, like the Elgin Marbles, um, and uh, in a sense more than the Elgin Marbles. I mean, I, I mean, when you go to Greece, people don't tend to come up and say we want the Elgin Marbles back. We go, we go to India, and people do Everyone actually about talk about the. And they all, they all yeah. have an idea about it, a thought about it. Uh, it may not have any basis in historical fact, but there is a very clear idea there that it's theirs, we pitched it, and they want it back. Um, and what's interesting, I think, is for anyone listening to this, you know, if I'm sure every person uh, who uh, is clever enough to subscribe to uh, BBC History magazine would, uh, if asked, you know, should um, art treasures looted by the Nazis in the 1940s be given back to their Jewish owners? Everyone would say, well, of course. So what's the moral difference between Indian art treasures looted in the 1840s, also at a point of a bennet? 
So is that your personal stance that you think imperially looted items should be returned? We've been very careful not to take a stance because it is a very complicated issue and what we really wanted to do was write the history. I think, you know, other people can form their opinions. There's been an awful... There's been so, so much heat and not much... It's called the Mountain of Light. There's been so little light about its history. So that's what we set out to do. And in a way, you know, we've sort of done the casework and if lawyers want to fight over it, you know, they have the history there in front of them. But what I can tell you is that it is a burning hot live issue. We may be talking about ancient history. A lot of the stories that we tell in this book are, and trust me, if you are of a weak disposition, I'm warning you now, there is blood, gore, molten lead, gouged out eyes, all sorts of things. Don't read it over breakfast. But, you know, for, for all that ancient history that lies behind this stone, it is a live political thing. I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, in actual fact, if one's talking history, you know, there were bigger Mughal diamonds, which the Mughals were a bigger, a bigger much bigger mughal spinels and rubies which if you'd asked Shah Jahan he'd have said yeah have one of those please no the Koei what you know (laughs) but uh, no one remembers the ones that went off to Iran the Darya Noor the sister of the Koei Noor which is an enormous flat table cut pink diamond the Darya Noor the sea of light no one remembers the great mughal diamond which is uh, almost certainly the Orlov uh, now in the uh, scepter of Catherine the Great in Russia these are at least as big, possibly bigger diamonds. People can't actually go out and weigh them anymore, sadly, but uh, uh, they are um, huge mogul diamonds. And no one in India knows anything no. about these. But they want this one back because we turned it into a, a similar colonial loot. And now we have to bear the fact that uh, uh, for many, many people in our colonies who look less benignly on the Raj than we like to think. I mean, the British still have this sort of slightly crazy idea that the Raj was basically a lot of similar tea parties, elephant trips, uh, the odd tiger shoot and, uh, and and a few dinners with Maharajas. Uh, Indians, of course, do not look at it like that. Indians uh, say, with, not without reason, that they were an economic superpower when we arrived, that we looted the country, shipped money out of there. There are straightforward accounts for the, the flow of gold from Bengal back to Britain in the 18th and 19th centuries. And when we left, India was an economic basket case, and it's now, only now, this year, reached parity with the size of the British economy again. And so, for Indians, the Kohinoor brings all that complicated history into one palmful of colonial hurt. Uh, and, it's, and it's a live issue. And mm-hmm. I think that the British should know this stuff, just like they should know the wider story of their colonial history. Our school children go to the Tower of London and they read this very anodyne little inscription. It was arrived you know, in India, in 18, uh, arrived in Britain in 1849 and, and, and we don't know any of the pain and the, of the complexity and, and horror of, of, the, of the bloodshed that preceded that. That was Anita Anand and William Dalrymple in conversation with Ellie Cawthorne. Koh-i-Noor, the history of the world's most infamous diamond, is out now in the UK and the US, published by Bloomsbury. And you can read a review of the book in the August issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. This month's edition also includes pieces on Passchendaele, the history of witchcraft, the partition of India, and the medieval black prince, among other things. Look out for it in August newsagents and in our many digital formats. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. 
we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. And now it's time for this week's History News with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. A large statue which may date back to the late 12th century has been uncovered by archaeologists at Cambodia's Angkor Wat Temple. The figure, which is two metres tall and made from sandstone, was found at the site of an ancient hospital built during the reign of King Jayavarman VII. Experts told the BBC it is the most important statue to be found at Angkor in recent years and described how the latest finds is all the more extraordinary due to the looting of many valuable items at the complex. The team hopes that the find may indicate further artefacts, including the Medicine Buddha, a prized statue thought to have been placed in one of the four hospitals built in the area. In other news, six structures at the Jodrell Bank Observatory in Cheshire, one of the earliest sites for radio telescopes in the world, have been given Grade 1 listed status. The site, now owned by the University of Manchester, dates from when radio astronomy began immediately after the Second World War. One of the structures to be listed is the observatory's Mark II telescope, built between 1962 and 64, and is the site's second large-scale, fully steerable radio telescope. The observatory's Lovell telescope, which was given Grade 1 listing in 1988, was constructed between 1952 and 57, and played a part in the early space race, tracking American and Soviet probes. Together, the telescopes enabled the observatory engineers to track the same object in space to improve the accuracy of observations. Crispin Edwards, 
listing advisor at Historic England, said, quote, Jodrell Bank is a remarkable place where globally important discoveries were made that transformed radio astronomy and our understanding of the universe. OK, well, that's about it for today. But please do come back on Monday when we're going to be talking about China in the Second World War. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.